Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jessica Spence, MD, who is the lead author for an article called Variation in Diagnostic Testing in Intensive Care Units, a comparison of teaching and non-teaching hospitals in a regional system, which will be in the upcoming January Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Spence is a third-year resident in the Department of Anesthesia at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Spence. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on uh, this publication. It's great to see uh, a third-year resident as a lead author on a very nice uh, study in our in our journal. I was wondering what got you involved and what sparked your interest in um, testing and diagnostic testing in the intensive care units. I think it all started actually during my time as a medical student rotating as a clerk. And I, I just made the observation that, especially because we have intensivists that change from one week to the next, how what wide variability there was in practice in terms of not only testing but day-to-day patient care items. And I, I started to think a little bit about the differences that resulted in terms of patient outcomes. And the conclusion I came to, at least anecdotally, was that it didn't actually make a big difference in spite of the fact that, you know, various staff would espouse their ideas quite passionately and feel very strongly about the way that they would practice. And so I really wanted to look a little bit closer at testing. And as I started to look at the literature regarding testing and the implications it has, um, I realized it actually is something that strikes a lot deeper than most of us actually appreciate. You know, as I uh, round in our intensive care unit and have different efforts to um, try and curb the over-diagnostics in our unit, it really is quite multifactorial. You know, I I always think it's purely just resident-driven, but the nurses in our ICU, the changes in attending from week to week. And and actually, as your manuscript pointed out, I, I have noticed what I perceived as an increased number of tests routinely done over the last few years. It, uh, it seems like it's this culture that just kind of grows off on its own. Absolutely. And I think, you know, certainly coming from the perspective of a trainee, it's quite difficult to, to know what's the right thing to do. Because, you know, honestly, one week to the next, you're punished for not testing enough. And then the subsequent week, you're, you're punished for testing too much. And it's really hard to hard to figure out what's the right thing to do and what's the best way to practice. And so I think it's it's becoming increasingly important, especially in this fiscal environment, to, to really carefully examine, you know, what are what are the, the factors that influence testing and testing frequency and what are the most important tests to do in specific settings, just so that very clear evidence-based guidelines can be established to sort of help us, help guide our, our clinical practice rather than just relying on sort of being yelled at for doing one thing or another. Yeah, it's certainly hard to be on that end of things. So is, is that in part what drove you to look at teaching versus non-teaching hospitals? Uh, what, what led to that approach? I think it was that question in particular. In my discussions with a number of staff, the perception really is that testing practice is actually resident, primarily resident-driven. And while I do think that is true to some extent, to a large extent I think it's reactionary. And I think it also reflects the direction they're being given by the attending staff who are employed to work in, in teaching hospitals and academic centers. And so certainly 
it's something that sort of spurred my interest and made me want to examine it a little bit more within within the region, within where I was training at the time. Yeah, and so it appeared you have a great database to look at these types of questions dated to a very granular level, and I was interested maybe to hear if you can tell us a little bit about the development of that database and, and how it was populated. It was interesting to me that most of the hospitals, uh, I think it was all but one, had were all on paper, no electronic health records, but yet such a granular database. I was wondering how that got created. Absolutely. So it was really thanks to the leadership and vision of Dr. Dan Roberts, who is one of the administrative directors within the intensive care program at the University of Manitoba at the time. And so he really, he lobbied and he advocated for allocation of funds because he recognized the importance of this kind of data collection so that we can reflect back on our practice and the, the results that it's had. And so really it was just sort of trying to lobby to, to get, gain funds. And then once those were achieved, then for a period of time, there were a number of intensive care nurses or former intensive care nurses who were employed as data collectors who would literally go through the charts of every single patient who would come through all of these ICUs. I mean, it's obviously extremely work-intensive and extremely time-consuming, but because there were a number of staff dedicated to that purpose, um, it was something reasonable to achieve. And then in later years, as the database grew and grew, uh, he actually was able to hire a statistician to work full-time just simply on the management and day-to-day upkeep of, of the database. At the time the paper was published, as, as mentioned, there was only a single hospital with an electronic medical record, but as more and more hospitals within our region come on board, there's the development of an electronic data dump where data is being funneled into this this database up, up until that time and, and still ongoing. While there's still a number of hospitals coming on board, there's still literally manual collection of all this data. So it's quite an impressive feat. And and at this point in time, from what I gather, a total number of patients included in the database exceeds 80,000. I think it's somewhere around, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 85,000 patients spanning nearly uh, 20 years, actually more than 20 years, 25 years. I imagine there's a lot of envious listeners. Uh, it sounds like a great tool for growth research and, and performance improvement. Absolutely, and I, there's, I know there's been, obviously including my own, but there's been quite a large number of, of papers that have been published drawing from the database and then a number of quality improvement measures that have been implemented based on uh, on feedback and, and outcomes monitoring that we've been able to do through the use of the database. Great. Can you take us through um, just briefly how you went about uh, looking at the differences and, and what you found? So essentially because we have this extremely rich database to draw upon, we're able to parse out quite a large number of covariates that we were able to control for. So really, a big part of the project itself was just cleaning up the data and making sure that we altered the variables to fit in a way that answered the question that we wanted to. A big part of that was actually establishing our outcome of interest. Because our particular interest was in looking at the differences between teaching and non-teaching hospitals. What we actually did is we, we developed an outcome variable that was tended to represent the amount of information being requested. So really to try to, to glean how much information are people asking for in these different centers. And so the, the outcome variable itself was actually a cumulative of a number of representative tests performed well in the ICU. So for example, 
we we included a CBC, we included a coagulation pa panel, but rather than include individual electrolytes, since those would typically be drawn all within one tube and ordered as a single test, we looked at serum potassium. And then as a representative of extended electrolytes, we looked at serum magnesium and so on and so forth. Also because I think it fits in with the, the concept of amount of information requested, we included uh, radiologic testing as well, and that included all x-rays and CT scans. I think that's something that's not actually been examined really well up to this point in time. And so we felt it was important to include, because certainly that's, there's a big patient burden when it comes to diagnostic imaging. Yeah, I think that was unique about about your paper in, in terms of prior studies. Really, I've just focused in looking at some of these issues related to blood draws and labs. Uh, that was a nice extension. And so among those different tests, you, 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 did, you certainly found in terms of the total testing that there were fairly stark differences between the teaching hospitals and then non-teaching hospitals. Yes and no. There were stark differences, but at the same time, you really have to ask about their significance in the context of a greater admission. And so what we did, I mean, obviously we controlled for a huge number of covariates to ensure that we were comparing apples versus apples. So just to make sure that patients weren't sicker or significantly different from one hospital to another. And when we did that, we found that after length of stay, the single most predictive determinant of the amount of testing that, that patients underwent was whether the hospital was a teaching hospital or not. But that being said, absolute median difference over the course of the length of admission was actually only seven fewer tests in a non-teaching ICU. And so while that initially sounds, you know, reasonably impressive, when you actually take into account that the mean length of stay was somewhere around three days, you really have to wonder about the absolute significance and difference between teaching and non-teaching hospitals. I mean, I think it's certainly worth discussing, but at the same time, roughly about two tests more a day, you know, you really have to wonder about the burden. And so that's a difference of seven tests over the course of the admission? Yes. And so was it driven by one set of tests or another, or are you able to break that down in, in terms of was it more so related to blood draws or radiographic studies? You know, actually, there were significant differences across the board. The only test in which there was no significant difference uh, between teaching and non-teaching hospitals were chest x-rays and electrocardiograms. That being said, every single other parameter, whether it was CT scans, whether it was blood cultures, whether it was complete blood counts, et cetera, whether it was blood gases, there was a significant increase when you looked at the patients admitted to teaching hospitals in spite of the fact that when you look at their Apache score, uh, the patients admitted to the non-teaching hospitals were actually slightly sicker than those admitted to the, the teaching hospitals. It's interesting. You know, here in Philadelphia where I practice, I both work at a teaching hospital and a non-teaching hospital, a level one and a level two trauma center, and I certainly feel the differences. I would have actually expected uh, a more disparate number of tests between the teaching and non-teaching hospitals based just, just on my own experience. I was wondering, I, I, I wondered as I was reading it, the degree to, of sickness for the teaching and non-teaching hospitals, and a lot of the baseline uh, parameters were pretty similar. And I wondered if that has something to do with the structure of non-teaching versus teaching hospitals in, in Canada, or if that was more of a selection 
process in that you're excluding patients that get transferred from one institution to another, or maybe both? I think it actually probably mostly represents the latter and the fact that we were very careful to try to only include patients who were really the same types of patients. So, for example, patients who may actually be sicker, neurosurgical patients, cardiac surgical patients, as you said, patients who were transferred to a teaching hospital from a non-teaching hospital because they weren't able to be managed in a a non-teaching hospital. I think because we excluded all of those patients, it certainly certainly probably accounts for the fact that it's not more disparate. So it sort of suggests that when you actually control for the patient-related variables, there's actually not as impressive a difference between teaching and non-teaching centers as one would expect. Yeah. So I guess as I look at this, as you pointed out, the ICU length of stay, which makes sense, the longer you stay, the more tests you're going to get, explained for quite a bit of the difference between the number of tests from from longer to shorter, obviously. So it explained, about, I guess, about 50% of the variability. And while teaching status was the next highest driver of increased testing, it actually drove a, a very much smaller percentage of the variability. Is that, would, would that be a good explanation? I guess it was about 3.8%. That's right. So while it's the second highest, it's still relatively insignificant in terms of its overall contribution, which I think speaks to the overall, what I think is the overall message of the paper is that potentially testing, testing is something that we have to address, but the differences between, between these different types of institutions is not that great. And when we're, we're looking at changing practices and developing better testing stewardship, I think interventions and um, approaches need to be directed both at at learners but also at staff physicians because I think we all need to sort of take some time to reflect on our practice and be a little bit mindful of of the implications of the the things that we're doing on a day-to-day basis. So you you point to the the concepts of of what over-testing implies. Um, It's costly. It may not improve outcomes, and in, and in fact, I guess in, in in some instances may worsen outcomes. How do we how do we get to know what the right level of testing is, or uh, is is there some way to to measure that? That's a really good question. You know, I think ultimately it's obviously going to require prospective trials, but it's those would be very difficult to design because you know you're going to have to develop trials that are designed for specific patients in a specific clinical situation. And so, I, I, you know, I'm not sure that's really achievable. But that being said, I think there's, there's common sense approaches that can be used where you think about the patient and their situation and the, the questions you're trying to answer in a reflective way. I do think that in general, frequently, we're taught to approach testing in kind of a shotgun-type way whether it's because of our own practice or un- discomfort with uncertainty or the fear of missing something, or whether it's because we're in- being instructed to, to practice in that kind of way. And, you know, that it, the reality is that to some extent, over-testing may be actually the price that you have to pay to facilitate the transition from uh, deductive to inductive reasoning. So I, I think to some degree, I know I'm taking a bit of a roundabout way to answer your question here, but I think at the end of the day, if uh, if people are reflective about their practice and think about if a test is really necessary, 
and what their primary differential is, they focus on ruling out that differential prior to trying to rule out every single other differential on their list, um, I think testing would be substantially decreased. Um, that being said, I, you know, I think there's certainly more evidence-based uh, guidelines that need to be developed and possibly review of uh, retrospective da databases such as this one, but also very careful design of prospective clinical trials to look at differences in outcomes would be useful. It's, it's challenging. I think you said a couple of important things, and I really like that one phrase. If, I, if you don't mind, I just want to read it again, actually, from your manuscript. So an additional consideration, however, is that some extra testing in teaching institutions may be a part of the price that must be paid while learners evolve from a more deductive reasoning style to the inductive approach of clinical problem solving used by experts. And I thought that was a really neat explanation and perhaps even justification of, I guess, the process one goes through in dealing with uncertainty and seeing patterns and having experience to being able to uh, make decisions with less information down the road. And I was hoping you could expand on that a little bit. I thought it was a really interesting um, approach. Sure, absolutely. I do think that in general, sort of clinical reasoning is something that is not very well taught in medical school and amongst trainees just simply because of the fact that by definition clinical reasoning is something that's mostly intuitive and it comes from practice and experience. And the reality is that that some quote unquote expert practitioners are actually better at clinical reasoning than others. And so I I think what we really need to do in terms of our approach not only to teaching at the medical school level but also at the postgraduate level and in in an ongoing way through fellowship and uh, continuing medical education to really emphasize making those intuitive clinical decisions explicit for the purposes of, of communicating them to the people that you're working with. Because to, to a large extent, too, it's, it really isn't just learners who are practicing in this way. There's also nurses who are encouraging testing because they know that, you know, they have a, a certain element of expectation as far as how many tests will be done and there's pressure placed on the physician and also the learner, especially after hours, to order those tests even though they may or may not be indicated. So I think for communication by those clinical experts of those intuitive thinking processes to those that they're working with I think is extremely useful. I think it's something that also needs to be incorporated into, into the way that tests are ordered. For example, there's a couple of papers that describe in the literature uh, approaches whereby clinical guidelines or clinical suggestions are actually written and inscribed into the, the test order, ordering, whether it's a, a physical piece of paper or whether it's a computerized order entry system. There's certain flags or cues that come up when certain tests are ordered suggesting clinical situations when they should and should not be ordered. And I think that's helpful, actually, in sort of helping people to think a little bit about about why they're ordering the tests that they're ordering rather than just simply ordering it to make sure that they've, they've been comprehensive in their approach. Has this um, caused or enabled you to take a different approach when you're practicing in the ICU? You know, I, you know when I, I round in the ICU and the, the tendency these days is for the, the house staff, and when the house staff don't order it, the nurse is expected to be done, so just order it themselves or draw it themselves, but uh, you know, you, a routine panel of labs that should be done on every patient regardless of um, their condition, and you know, sometimes I tend to 
ask them to pay a quarter for each test that they can't explain why why it's uh, how it's impacting the patient's care that day or but just get to get people thinking about you know ordering every individual test and do you need it or not now so i wonder how that how that's transcribed into uh, your practice when, when you're uh, rotating in the icu certainly it's something that's really made me stop and think i'm i think i'm probably a lot more mindful when i go through and i'm caring for a patient about the tests that i am ordering and i make sure that i have a specific reason to order them i try also i, I think a big part of house staff ordering is to save themselves phone calls in the middle of the night or having to reorder things or worry about forgetting things down the road, which is in some ways reasonable, especially when you're taking care of an ICU of 25 very sick patients. But that being said, uh, trying not to avoid multiple tests or tests for more than 24 or 48 hours. And there's a couple of ICUs within the region that I'm practicing right now that actually only allow tests to be ordered for up to 24 hours. So I think that's one good step in the right direction. I do think, too, Staff physicians have a big role to play in terms of encouraging or discouraging testing, stewardship. And I I certainly know while I try to sort of be mindful in my approach, at the end of the day, I'm not the one who's medically legally responsible in an ultimate kind of way. It's the staff. And so ultimately, I really, while I can advocate and articulate my opinion, it's the staff physician who has to decide. And I know that some weeks I'll order a lot more tests than I would like to. But it really has a lot to do with the leadership of the attending intensivist. It's interesting to hear uh, you talk about the medical legal implications as well. I think that certainly drives a lot of testing, uh, uh, certainly here in our city of Philadelphia, which uh, uh, has had some medical legal issues. I'm actually a little bit surprised to hear that uh, from, from up from our northern country. I thought it would be a little bit less. I think it probably is less. Canada really is a much less litigious culture, but that being said, we're still very cautious yeah. and mindful. And, it, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's a staff physician whose name's on the piece of paper that is ultimately going to have to face the consequences if, if families feel that care has not been adequate. So I, I don't think that it plays the same role that it does in the U.S., but I certainly think it, it influences decision-making to, to some degree. Any plans for the future or future uh, investigation that you're uh, interested in springboarding from here? So right now I'm actually I'm looking at a couple of different things. I'm trying to, it's, it's, been, it's taken a little while moving from one center to another, trying to sort of establish a groundwork. But right now I'm looking at trying to design different interventions to, to modify testing and just simple things that, simple educational and structural adaptations that can be made in order to, adapt testing practice within the ICUs here. Um, And given my interest in intraoperative practice, I'm also looking at intraoperative testing because it's not something that's actually been examined within the literature at all. So certainly uh, at the moment, I'm trying to do an audit looking at intraoperative testing practice and the different predictors of ordering tests when a patient is in the midst of a surgery and whether that actually has a difference in terms of outcome. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, that has not, I've not seen any literature regarding that. Very good. Well, it's really been great talking to you. Uh, I think you have a lot of insight and I, I certainly learned a lot. And we certainly look forward to more from you in the future. Wish you the very best of luck. Thank you so much. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP. 
serves as an associate editor for the Eye Critical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the Surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.